Well, good morning, everybody. Um, this section here, uh, these encounters that we've read, chapter 20, is really just a series of repeated encounters, um, really theological debates in truth between Jesus and um, the leaders of the nation. Um, now, what these encounters are about is essentially the future of Israel. Uh, what direction will the nation go, and who is in charge? Now, the context makes that clear. Um, what happened um, in our previous time in the Gospel of Luke a couple weeks ago? Jesus entered Jerusalem as king. He was recognized and celebrated by the masses, and then he proceeded to enter the temple and cleanse it from all the wicked things that were being done there. Now, those activities, maybe not to us, but to the people of the time, were very politically charged actions. Here comes the king. What are Herod, who called himself the king of Israel, and Pilate going to think of him? He cleanses the temple. How are the temple officials and the elders going to respond? Jesus essentially declares himself as their rival, and moreover, the people are on his side. So attention hangs over our passage. What is going to happen? Is there going to be a clash between the self-appointed king and the established authorities? Or will Pilate exercise military might and settle the whole thing? Or... Will the leaders and the elders recognize and submit to Jesus? So thus, in his entrance into the city and to the temple, Jesus forces everybody's hand. Now he knows what he's doing, and he knows what he's come for. The conditions for his crucifixion have long been in place, right? We've read again and again in the Gospel of Luke how the leaders were at odds with him and in many places wanted to put him to death. Now he's setting things in motion as he comes into Jerusalem. He's drawing out the true colors of the leaders and the elders and even the people too. And that's mainly what this chapter is about. So notice how it opens uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, One of these days, or one of the days, while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. Notice all, all, the, all the big guys. They confronted him and they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority. So, in cleansing the temple and in teaching in it, Jesus far exceeds his jurisdiction, or, or so the leaders think. He's not a priest. He has no official role in the temple. Who or what authorized him to do such things? I can't go around canceling people's debt or issuing driver's license because I don't have the proper authorization. And neither does Jesus. But he's going around acting like he owns the place. So he has the, the nation's leaders in a difficult position. Now, if this were any other person, uh, they would arrest him and kill him. It was an easy solution. But Jesus, 
remember, has the people on his side. They think he's the king. He is the king. They're worshiping and and acclaiming him. They think the kingdom of God is right around the corner. So for now, until other measures can be taken, they're forced to settle things more diplomatically. So they gather every nobleman from the city, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they ask him, who gave you this authority? Jesus responds now, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, But why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, what Jesus does here is more than simply change the subject. He answers their question, by what authority do you do these things, without answering their question by appealing to John the Baptist. Now, what was his ministry all about? Well, it was about preparation. And preparation for what? Preparation for the coming one, John said who's going to come and baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' authority in the temple and John's ministry in the wilderness are linked. If you acknowledge one, you acknowledge the other. If you deny one, you deny the other. So Jesus has them trapped. Whatever answer they choose, they are exposed. So, like trained politicians, they answer, no comment. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus' authority is from above. He acts not on his own accord, but according to the Father who sent him. And thus, without sparing a breath, he proceeds to tell a parable about the owner of a vineyard and his mutinous workers. And the point of the parable is to expose the leader's wicked and rebellious actions and also to let them know that they are being fired. Rather than responsibly discharge their duties and present the owner with fruit in due season, they killed all his messengers and even his own beloved son. So, Jesus asks, what is the owner of the vineyard going to do when he comes? He answers now in verse 16, he will come and destroy these vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. Remember Psalm 118 a couple weeks ago. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on him who it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So the leaders will seal their own fate and consign themselves to oblivion because the stone they reject, namely Jesus, will become the chief cornerstone. Their temple and their priesthood will be utterly destroyed, scattered like dust, and upon Jesus, a new temple and a new priesthood will be built. And it's not going to be managed by the corrupt and inept leaders of Jerusalem, but the twelve apostles, 
They're the ones who the new, uh, the stone, right, is given to. Who, along with Jesus, constitute the foundation of the new temple. Ephesians chapter 2, I think drawing heavily on this passage. Listen, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and whom the whole building is being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The apostles there, living stones with them, and us as well, living stones being built into a holy temple for the Lord. Now, needless to say, uh, the established authorities are not happy about this. The passage says, after Jesus schools them, they tried to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people. So straightforward violence, at least for now, is out of the picture. So another tact has to be taken, but what? So listen, the scripture continues. Now verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in substatement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. So the leaders go covert, in effect, and they hire theological henchmen to do their dirty work. If they cannot themselves end Jesus' life, these men, versed in the scriptures, will get him to do it. They only need one incriminating statement, and Jesus can then be turned over to the Roman authorities for execution. So their desperation and fear and envy is beginning to show as the true king comes, just as the parable said it would. These men, the leaders of Jerusalem, have no interest in what is right and what is true, even in what God actually wants, but really in holding on to their own power. That's what they want. And like the vine growers, they're ready to murder the beloved son however possible so that they can snatch up the inheritance for themselves. So the first group of theological spies comes to Jesus with feigned praise on their lips. Teacher, they say, we know that you speak and teach correctly and are not partial to any. They're schemers. They're setting him up. There's an obvious answer to their question, an incriminating one, and they're greasing the road to get there. So they play nice and ask, verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in the saying, in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they all, or rather, they became silent. So to catch the genius of Jesus' answer, we have to know something of the trap that the spies laid for him. Now, they present him with a no-win question, as he had done to them earlier. If Jesus says not to pay taxes to Caesar, they've got him. Uh, He's a political agitator. They tell on him to Rome, and it's over. 
But on the other hand, if Jesus does say to pay taxes to Caesar, he depletes his capital with the population. They're thinking some king, right? He still has us under the rule of the Romans. So how's Jesus going to respond? Now, in the first place, he asks them to produce a denarius. Now, a little context here. A denarius had the image of Caesar on it, as Jesus pointed out, and it read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Now, having that coin, let alone using it, was considered blasphemous to the Jews. If you know anything of the history of the time, there was constant conflict between the Romans and the Jews about the kind of banners and coinage that the Romans would use being that this kind of thing, images were blasphemous to the Jewish people. So the spies come to trap Jesus, but he turns the tables. It's they, not he, who has the blasphemous coin in their possession. And then he asks them, whose inscription and likeness does it have? It's Caesar's image who's stamped onto the coin. So he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's, the things that are God's. Now, Jesus doesn't split the world into two realms here, one consisting of earthly authority and another of spiritual authority. That's a modern reading into the text that invents this autonomous fear that we call the secular, which is totally foreign to the Scriptures. Instead, Jesus affirms the necessity of obedience to earthly rulers, but dramatically relativizes their authority. Render to God the things that are God's. It's not that God's is something different than Caesar's, but that all is God's, even Caesar himself. Now, there's more to say on the matter, but the simple point is, Jesus gives his answer, and the cunning spies are silenced. No one has an answer for Jesus. And then come the Sadducees, And Jesus gives the same whipping to them too. They come with some absurd question designed to make the resurrection seem like an entirely ridiculous idea, right? One, two, three, four, seven wives, right? Who is she going to be? And Jesus leaves them embarrassed too. He demonstrates how manifestly wrong they are, both about the scriptures and about the age to come. And the encounter ends... They did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. And thus he begins to question them, asking them riddles about the coming Christ. So the chapter begins with Jesus on the defensive, confronted by the leading men. And it ends now with him on the offensive, confronting and confounding them. So if this is a context, contest rather between rival authorities, it's not a contest at all. The beloved son outwits and outmatches the vine growers in every respect. The usurpers are humiliated as the true king steps into his own. Yet, in triumphing over them, he backs them into a corner. In order to hang on to their power, something now that they are very determined to do, they have very few options left. Jesus, 
This one the people called the king must die by whatever means, justly or unjustly. And it turns out that's exactly what he wants. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. So, now that we've caught the narrative drama of the passage, and you'll notice these next three chapters are just running headlong to the cross. Everything is building toward that end. Now that we've understood that, how the cross seems inevitable, and that by Jesus' own design, we can shift gears and take a different angle on the passage. And so I would like to do that by returning to the parable of the vine growers and spending the rest of our time there. So the parable, I read it earlier, the parable uh, describes a common situation. Uh, Something like an entrepreneur uh, launching a business venture today. Um, He or she has the capital and the know-how to start a business, does it, hires it out, and then reaps in the benefits. That's a very normal situation uh, then as it is now. What's abnormal about this situation is the hired worker's behavior. At the harvest time, when the owner sends to receive his produce from the vineyard, the vine growers, remember, those who were hired out, who are being given a fair wage, uh, so on and so forth, they beat and abuse the messenger. Now, what's going on? This is insane behavior. They do it again and again for a second and a third time. Ultimately, they even murder the beloved son of the owner. He says, maybe they're going to respect my son. Maybe at last they'll listen to him. And he sends him. And in fact, they kill him and cast him out. It's a hostile takeover. The hired hands are acting like owners. Indeed, they're taking ownership of the vineyard. So, How does this situation described in the parable relate to us? Well, it shows us that humans are, it shows us rather what humans are, tenants, vine growers, hired hands, and what humans want to be, and that is owners. The human story is one of the hired hands turning against the owner abusing and murdering his messengers. And more to the point, the parable that Jesus tells is a story of Israel and its relationship to the Lord. Now this vineyard scene that Jesus puts to use, it comes from another part of the scripture. Um, And that's the writings of the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 5, he composes a song with an eerily similar, similar theme. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. So go ahead and put the pieces together here. Isaiah is singing of his well-beloved and of his well-beloved concerning his vineyard. He goes on, well, he says, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. 
Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And the song goes on. So Jesus, quite obviously, is employing the same imagery, but he makes an important alteration in his parable. In the prophet song, the vineyard is the thing that goes sour, producing worthless grapes. In Jesus' telling, however, the vineyard yields its produce, but the tenants are the worthless ones. Not the vine, but the tenants. Israel's leaders, the parable says, are consistently or have consistently rejected the Lord's messengers, the prophets beating and imprisoning them and even murdering them because they want control, because they wanted to have the estate for themselves. But what plays out on a corporate scale, and this is true of all the scriptures, also plays out on an individual scale. The same impulse to seize control of the vineyard lies within us too. So allow me to ask a question. How how do we understand ourselves as owners or as tenants? Now this is important, the way we understand ourselves, because if we understand ourselves as owners rather than tenants, the command of Christ, the command of the owner, can never rise above anything more than an inconvenient interruption into our lives. We are the owners. The vineyard, more on that in a minute, is essentially ours. And here comes someone else, his faraway place, sending his messengers to tell us what to do with what is ours. His command is the cause for resentment and bitterness in our lives. Because as owners, we have our own plans for this or that. We, we got our own master plan for the vineyard. But his command to mercy and purity and generosity gets in the way. It upends our plans. It, it, it frustrates them. And so I'm bitter and I'm angry about it. And so what we have, owner and owner, is a conflict of interest, one versus the other. And as long as we understand ourselves as owners, our relationship with the owner, with God, can be nothing more than that, a struggle for control, characterized by strife and conflict. And again, it goes like this. We are in possession of our own lives, and the would-be owner gets what he wants by throwing his weight around and threatening to damn every last one of us if we don't obey. Owner versus owner, it's a relationship marked by control, marked by authoritarianism. You do this or it means the end of you. And of course, fear, owner against owner. Now at this point, we're very, very far from loving obedience. But one may still obey. One may still obey, even in this owner relationship, only through gritted teeth, however. 
It's not the willing obedience that comes at the foot of the cross. Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. But this is arm-twisting obedience, right? Where God exercises his authority, authority against us and beats us into submission. Thus, what we have, what we enter into here is a contractual relationship. I give you these things, meaning us, right? I give you these things, whatever they may be, my tithes, a decent life, um, uh, morals, and you give me what I want, namely, not to go to hell. Or it might be a different kind of contractional relationship. I give you these things, I'll go to church, I'll I'll make sure to raise the kids right, Um, I'll do all these other things in exchange for you kind of just staying out of my life, right? I'll I'll do that, but let me keep control of my ownership. Now, we may never go so far, right, as to lead a mutiny against the owner because we're Christians and we're church people, right? We're not going to go that far. But we learn how to manage the competing claims of ownership. So we're not going to raise a mutiny, but we're going to learn how to manage this situation between owner and owner. We learn, in other words, to give God his slice of the pie. And we say, render to me what is mine and to God's what is his, namely the minimal thing necessary to keep him off my back. Right. So does this sort of arm-twisting, contractional relationship sound familiar? Is this how you imagine and think about your relationship to the Lord? I'll do this and you give me this, right? I'll manage my part, you manage your part. And of course, that sounds um, more self-willed and rebellious than it often is. Now, surely there are instances where the person is simply proud and wants this kind of relationship, right? They, they just want to, this is what they want. But from my own experience, um, personally and pastorally, um, it's more often this relationship rooted in forgetfulness. You know, we've known these truths in times past and gladly acknowledged them, right? I don't want to be the owner, Lord. I want to give everything to you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you for what you've done for me, right? We've, we've known that, and we've acknowledged it, and it's been the joy of our lives, but we've forgotten. We've forgotten that we are tenants. Somewhere down the road, the transition slipped, and, 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 and we went from the uh, tenant gear all to you I owe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, to the owner gear. We forgot the gospel. We forgot the joy of salvation. And we began to say, my time, uh, my dreams, my plans, my body, my truth, my whatever. And once we've begun to understand ourselves as owners, aware of it or not, that's when all the problems come seeping in. That's when we start to manage the relationship. That's when we begin to move from gospel to, well, something else to some sort of unbiblical relationship with the Lord. Okay, so what is the solution? 
How do we move from owners to tenants, or from tenants to owners back to tenants? We can start with the Apostle's words, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And he says that you are not your own. Notice, he says, Or do you not know? Have you forgotten? Have you never learned that you are not your own? He says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That, brothers and sisters, is the good news. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. We are tenants and not owners. We are vine growers, and that is great news. In fact, that's the good news. You've been bought with a price. But, but I get it, right? That's a hard pill to swallow. You are not your own. It runs contrary to everything we've been told from youth up, and so it can only sound controlling and domineering to our ears. And in many instances, for good reason. It's quite normal now to hear reports of ministers, teachers, politicians, doctors, and employers regularly caught abusing the people under their care. This thought, I am not my own, sounds like I'm giving myself into the hands of someone who does not have my best interest in mind. So thus, in our environment, a person's autonomy, I am my own, is a matter of protection and self-defense. And again, so giving up control seems like the worst possible idea, especially giving up control to a cosmic authority. And if that's what it means to be a tenant, I agree. Alan Noble says that in each case, the one in authority treats the other person instrumentally. They treat him instrumentally, that is, as an object to be used. He goes on, The citizen is a tool for achieving the goals of the state. The follower is a tool for the cult leader's pleasure. The wife is a tool for her husband. Instrumental, right? Instrumentality is the bottom line of the relationship. And so to recognize that we are not our own is to give ourselves over into the hands of someone, of a God even, who does not have our best interests in mind. And so this, in fact, sounds like bad news to people. You are not your own. But how is the Apostles' Proclamation good news? Because it is. Well, remember the denarius? Whose image was on it? Caesar's. But whose image do we bear? God's. Render to God the things that are God's. How can God be at war with his own image? He did not create us to control us, to be served, to be worshipped, or whatever. The apostle says very, very plainly, God is not served by human hands, as though he needed anything. As though God creates us so he can extract something from us, so that we can give him this sense of authority that he's never had or whatever. Instead, he says, he gives to all people life and breath and all things. 
So the God who says to you, you are not your own, is also the one who lovingly sustains your existence this very moment. The one from whose hand you receive all good things. The one who takes the bad things and promises to use them for your salvation. And the one who is given his only beloved son in your place. It's good. It's very good to be a vine grower. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So this, this vine grower part of it, right? <laughs> it's built into the prayer that is at the heart of all prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now the old church father, Tertullian, he says, When we pray these words, we wish ourselves well, because there is nothing evil in the will of God. We say, thy will be done. And we're not, we're not giving ourselves over into the hands of someone who's there to just get what he needs from us. He says, but we're praying good for ourselves because in God's will, there's nothing evil, there's nothing harmful, but only the good of his creatures and the good of his people. Or, and we shall memorize these, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, it's a question and answer format, question, it's the very first part of the catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? Think about that for a moment, for you. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life, life and death, to, Jesus, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. My only comfort in life is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, both life and death, to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let us give willingly that control over to the Lord. Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. But here's the thing, right? To be a tenant is to be more than in agreement with God's will. It's to be more than in agreement. It's rather to be in union with God's will. When I agree to God's will, I retain my autonomy, right? I attain my own sovereign space. My will is distinct and I consent to the divine will, right? I'm agreeing to it. I'm still an owner. But to be a tenant, right, is to have no other will but the will of God, right? There's union of the wills, not, okay, Lord, I'll go along with it. I'm still hanging on to my slice of the pie. No, Lord, I'm in union with what you want. So to be a tenant, to receive and to live out the truth that we belong to Christ without remainder is an act of faith, right? It's an act of faith. It means giving up control, giving up ownership, the notion that we know what's best for ourselves, and casting ourselves entirely upon the goodness of God, right? That takes faith to say that. Lord, I'm not going to do things my own way, but I'm trusting in your goodness. That, that takes faith. Thy will, even when we don't understand it, even when we don't agree with it, is what is good and best. Because you, Lord, are what is good and best. And you only want what is good and best. So, walk in faith and do the will 
of God. And let me end briefly with one more observation. What figure in the scripture is the opposite of the corrupt leaders that we encounter in the parable of the vine growers? What figure who do we find who embodies the very opposite? It's not Jesus. I mean, it's always Jesus, but it's John the Baptist. You guys remember that story in John chapter 3 where Jesus starts his ministry and the followers of John the Baptist start to run off and throw in their lot with Jesus? And those loyal to John the Baptist say, look, Lord, they're running away and they're with Jesus now. Or look, John, they're running with Jesus. We, we, this is not good. And, and, and what does John say? He says, I'm, I'm the best man at the wedding, right? I, I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. And my joy is made full when I see the bride coming to Jesus. He says, this joy of mine has become full. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John is the opposite example of these, uh, these vine growers. And he represents the completion of our journey as a tenant. And, and what is that completion? Well, it's the identification of our only happiness with the glory of Jesus Christ. That's when this road has been completed, right? We're learning little by little to, to every day put away our ownership and to follow the Lord, to give it all over to Him. But moreover, the end of that is to see my only happiness is His glory. He must increase. I must decrease. So what now? Well, the Lord desires fruit in due season. The vineyard, the vineyard is you. All that you are and all that you have. Whatever is yours, your natural and spiritual talents, your wealth or lack thereof, your time and energy and everything else is a gracious gift from above. God planted the vineyard and he put you over it. You've been hired out to steward it well. He has given you the raw materials that you may cultivate and glorify them and return them to him in worship. So we turn now just a moment to Holy Communion. And it's the perfect image for what God wants from us. Consider, we don't consume raw grapes and wheat, but we consume cultivated and glorified grapes and wheat. God has given us the raw materials, so to speak, and we transform them. The wheat is plucked, it's pulverized, it's turned to flour, it's mixed with yeast and water and herbs, it's baked, and then it's used in worship. There's this whole process before it's offered up to God. And the same goes for the grapes. They're removed from the vine. They're crushed. They're stored. They're fermented. They're done all the other things that need to be done. Then they're used in worship. God gives. We cultivate. And then return it to Him in thanksgiving and praise. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Therefore, taking communion as a model, cultivate everything that God has given you as is your reasonable service and present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices to God. And so that we may sacrifice 
that we may freely give our lives over to Jesus Christ, let us now receive once for all the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his body and blood. So I invite now the heads of the household up to come and receive communion. I'll have some time for you to think upon these things and to meditate and to do what needs to be done, and then we'll celebrate communion together. So come do that now.